0: Welcome to The Queer SLP,
1: a podcast for the LGBTQ
0: professional. Join two chatty speech language pathologists as we deep dive into queer culture, evidence-based research, and work-related issues.
1: The Queer SLP's mission is to establish a sense of community, discuss informative content, and provide a space for other proud professionals to share their stories.
0: Welcome to the Queer SLP. My name is Hector, and my pronouns are he, him.
1: And I'm Natalie, my pronouns are she, her. And we also have... I'm Lauren, and my pronouns are she, her.
0: You might have remembered Lauren from our last Proud Professional episode. She is back with us today because we are going to start talking about racism within the LGBTQ plus community, but also... Racism within the professional world as well.
1: Big topic. Big topic, yes. yes. For sure.
0: (laughs) Where to start?
1: (laughs) Let's start by talking about professionalism in the workplace. And Hector, you brought our attention to an article that you read Mm -hmm. and you shared it with us. Racism runs deep in professionalism culture. And this is from the Tulane Hullabaloo. It has a number of points in it. And we thought we would discuss this article.
0: Some of the things that was spoken about was who decides what is professional? What is professional-like behavior? Why should we even strive toward it? That article speaks about things that people of color often face when trying to maintain a sense of professionalism. The first point that they come up with is asking themselves if their name is white enough. So, Lauren, what are your thoughts on that piece?
2: That's a really good point. I think my name is pretty white. You know, to me, Lauren is a very common name. I think when people saw my resume and saw my full name, they probably automatically assumed I was white. I never really thought that that would hinder me from getting a job. But I know some of my friends who maybe have more unique names and sometimes telling me they didn't get a call back for a job, but maybe an Ashley did or a Caitlin or a Jessica. So I definitely do agree with that. Whiter sounding names tend to get more callbacks when it comes to jobs or more acceptances into higher level education like grad school, which is unfortunate because, yeah, your name is what identifies you. It has nothing to do with who you are as a person, if that makes sense. I don't understand why that hearing a name is what would make someone judge you
0: or
1: prejudge you based on, you know, something like that.
0: What about you, Natalie?
1: Yeah, well, you know, the innocent, wide-eyed person in me is like, well, why would that matter? Like, if they have, you know, Mm -hmm. this great experience, I think I'm with you, Laura, and I don't really understand why that would be. Do names predict who you're going to be as a person? I don't think so. Or maybe it does.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know in Asian culture, because there is such a desire to be westernized as much as possible for a lot of Asian cultures, We all have a white name, and I say that with quotes. (laughs) Um, So both my grandparents, when they came over here, they changed their names. My mom goes by a different name. My roommate goes by a different name, and he just picked the name out of a book. It's because of his Chinese name. It was too hard to pronounce, and so it just became easier to pick another name. So, for example, even my mom, her name is Rosalia, but she picked Sally. My grandfather, his name is 6'2". He chose Mike. (laughs) You know, like, these are these very white-sounding names Mm -hmm. that they picked in order to integrate into Western society. I would say it's a very common thing that happens, at least across Asian cultures.
1: Yeah, I used to have a neighbor, actually, now that you bring that up, Hector, I had a neighbor who was from Pakistan. And when Andrea and I introduced ourselves to him, he... Gave us his name, but then he gave us another name and it was like a Western name. And we asked him, well, why do you give us two names? And he said, well, you know, Americans have a hard time pronouncing my actual name. So just call me Mac. And so we called him Mac.
0: Right. Um, It's just accepted. in Like any sort of Asian culture or Middle Eastern culture, it sounds like to kind of just it's easier to accept that without realizing how that is inherently racist and it's just such a huge desire to integrate into western society it still boggles my mind but yeah it's a very common thing
1: i don't know it makes me think you know and this probably applies to a lot of things but if you don't challenge white people to change if you don't challenge white people to pronounce the name it's not going to happen, right? Like we grow by challenging. Right. I'm coming from a place of like not judging other people. I'm just saying in order to grow, you have to reach that zone of proximal development. Right? right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I'm trying not to judge, but I'm also like if every person that I meet from another country or has a difficult to pronounce name gives me a different name than what they were given, then I never learned to pronounce those names. I think that as speech pathologists, we know that if you practice a sound, it gets easier. Yeah.
2: I just feel like you have to advocate for yourself. I know, I mean, if someone mispronounced my name, I would be like, hold up, wait, let me say it for you first so you can get it right this time and every time after. You know, don't let people tell you or make up a nickname for you. You know, if your name is Letitia or I'm just going to call you T like, no, my name is Letitia, you know, letting people know, no, you're going to pronounce my name correctly because that's what I'm doing for you.
0: Lauren, do you feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, do you think that culturally appropriate names for the black community are considered like inherently unprofessional?
2: Yeah, I do.
0: Like, so again, for, I can only speak for the Asian community. We're the first ones to be like, let's come up with a different name. Mm -hmm. What is the experience for the Black community to your understanding, at least from your experience? Like, I know your name is Lauren, but (laughs) but for (laughs) others, you may know, like, do they try to change their name at all? Or are they more like advocating for themselves to say, no, my name is whatever it may be?
2: Yeah, I think it's a mix. I know... Some of my friends just shorten it and just have like a nickname. I have a friend named Quanasia, and she just kind of goes by the nickname Nay, which, I mean, it's fine. That's her decision. But I'm like, girl, tell these people to pronounce your name correctly, even if you have to break it down syllable by syllable. If that's what it takes, then do that, because that's your name. It's how people identify you. And it's only right that people respect you by being able to say it correctly. And then I have other friends who do that exact thing. So I'll break it down for you. I'll model it for you. But you're going to respect me and who I am and my name. Honestly, I think it just has to do with ignorance. Names like Ashley, Kate, they're easy to say. they are a couple syllables, one syllable. Whereas, you know, something like Quinasia, it's longer. There are more sounds. And it takes a little bit more time to think about how to pronounce it. I just think it's ignorance and laziness when it's just so simple, at least in my opinion, to just try and say the name correctly. It just seems so simple to me.
1: Well, and I would hope that the effort would be appreciated. Like, just try, Mm -hmm. you know? Definitely. I don't know about you guys, but I, especially when it comes to like students with difficult to pronounce names, I end up writing in IPA how to pronounce their name, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like on their chart, because I'm like, All right, their parents said it for me. So I'm just going to quickly write it down in IPA so that I can practice it. You know, I think that as speech pathologists, we kind of have that skill to use IPA, not Mm -hmm. just to take data for our students, but also to try and learn how to pronounce difficult to pronounce
0: names. Right. I've been on the receiving end for being stereotyped of what my ethnic background is just based off of what my name is. So a lot of people will, one, assume that I don't know my first name because my last name is Miguel. So when they ask for my last name, I'll say, oh, it's Miguel. And they're like, last name. And I'm like, it's Miguel, you know. And so they one, they automatically assume I'm Hispanic. One, they assume Miguel is my first name. And then even after multiple tries, they still get it wrong. And so and they assume I speak Spanish as well. Like even when we say like the Ashleys, we can't assume that that's a Caucasian person, you know, like we, sh- we need to be aware of everyone's names and their origin and who they associate with, you know, as far as like ethnicity goes. But it is a real thing. The name, as much as it's a name, it has so much power. We give it because it's like the first label, right? <laughs> it really is the first label that we assign to somebody. And from there, we kind of come up with like, a oh, you're, you know, a Karen. You know, like (laughs) we've already established what that is, right? And so there's negative associations with names. There's also positives with other names that are more socially acceptable. But, you know, it's all BS. But yeah, it's a thing. It's really a thing, especially in the professional world.
1: We just need to keep trying, like keep trying to say the name. I think it's part of the work of like not making a snap judgment about somebody the name is included in that mm-hmm. you can't really tell anything about a person by the name that they're given, but it's there. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I have an answer. I, I, think
0: I have, I have an answer. <gasps> I think it's answer. a really quick one okay. um, would be having people with like culturally specific names in higher positions. If they are in management positions, they will be the face of those companies in the professional world, which means that the rest of the companies going down will have to get used to these names. Mm -hmm. And so the more you see it, the visibility, right? We always talk about that, how visibility matters. Well, if I see my CEO, is it Quanisha? You know, like if I see that, I'd be like, okay, I know that name. You would inherently associate positions of power with names that have different diverse backgrounds. And then that would create that opportunity to unpack that inherent racism that exists within the professional world. And so mm-hmm. I think that's like one way that can help bridge that gap, to at least with the name issues. Other things, I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we talk a lot about putting people of color and people that basically aren't white and male and straight into positions of power, but I don't think That we've ever talked about it in this way, Hector, is sort of blowing my mind over here a little bit. That names, putting people with certain names in positions of power can also be very powerful. Mm -hmm. Hadn't really even thought of that. Me neither. (laughs) It's just like, wow, Hector, the wisdom.
0: It just happened. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that's that's one way. (laughs) Lauren, do you have anything else to add to that before we go on to our next point of the article?
2: yeah I think I don't know. I'm probably being a Debbie Downer right now, but I think it's a great idea. I love that idea. It's just thinking about like how are they realistically going to get there when people with these diverse names and unique names are constantly being put down and not considered for just entry level jobs, you know, just that basic level of discrimination. So I mean, I know it can happen, but I know it's really discouraging. just continue to get knocked down just because of something so simple, like, you know, the name. But I do think ultimately that needs to be the goal for sure.
0: Yeah, I think you're 100% right. It has to be very discouraging. And there's a lot, but putting a name to it and labeling it like, oh, yeah, there's racism with your name. Let's make that a thing. You know, like, let's talk about that.
1: I think it's really important, Lauren, to keep in mind, you know, and thank you for, for bringing that up. That for so many people, just the name shuts the door. They can't even get their foot in the door to their chosen profession, Mm -hmm. just right out the gate. The dream is to have, regardless of your name and just on your merit, right? Like Mm -hmm. having opportunities, but clearly that's not where we are right now. And it's one of the reasons why we have this podcast is to try and change that (laughs) and open the conversation. I'm hopeful we'll get there. So Hector, what's the next topic?
0: So the author came up with the next one being your hair is too black. Lauren, you've spoken about this a little bit in your proud professional episode. Have you ever had a critique from a manager or a supervisor saying that your hair was not professional?
2: I haven't had a direct comment like that, but I remember this was like a couple jobs ago. I would obviously wear my hair natural like it is now, but sometimes I would straighten it. And that's when, like, my manager would be like, oh, my God, your hair is so nice. It's so, like, tamed and beautiful. But then, like, when I washed it, it was back in it, bro-state, nothing. Not that I was expecting comments. I know it's pretty. I don't need your comments. But <laughs> it was <laughs> it was just interesting. It was something that I found that was
1: interesting. So it was almost like... Um,
0: A backhanded compliment.
1: Yeah, yeah. I could totally relate to that as a woman of size. Because when I lose weight, people tell me I look so nice. But then if I gain the weight back, then there's no compliment. It's a criticism, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But like you said, it's not direct. Right.
0: And it is, you know, disguised as a compliment. Mm -hmm. You know, that is tough. I'm learning more about the the cultural significance of women of color, specifically Black women and their hair. You know, just talking about braid patterns we're talking right. about you know just going back into like slavery and escaping the roots people don't know those things and to have that being considered unprofessional i mean again it just goes back to the point that professionalism is inherently racist yeah uh,
2: definitely especially when people touch your hair and don't ask wait that. yeah what what this happened. Oh my goodness! Well, my manager didn't do that, but I've had white—I guess not—not not friends, but like people I've gone to school with, coworkers who. Oh wow! It's so—it's actually soft, and I'm like, uh-uh. what? <laughs> Wait a minute! It, and I'm laughing now, but it—it is so enraging because it—it it makes you feel like a dog. Yeah. Like I'm just gonna go and pet you. I'm not gonna ask. I mean, even if someone did ask, I would say no. But it's
0: why do you no? Know? Know?
2: <laughs> I wish that I knew. I think it's out of curiosity. I think it's, wow, your hair looks different. It's not like mine. It's big. It just looks different. So let me touch it so I know what it feels like. But I'm like, that is not appropriate. I don't get that. It's very dehumanizing, in
1: my opinion. Yeah, it's a violation mm-hmm. of your personal space. Yeah, definitely.
0: I have a friend whose son was almost not allowed to go to a school unless he cut his locks off
2: mm-hmm.
0: because that wasn't considered professional. And this is a boy going into high school. So he was like <laughs> an eighth grade boy with locks, which is again, a very culturally significant hairstyle. And then he was going to go to this private school and they were like, you need to cut your locks.
2: Mm-hmm. That happens so often. Right. My wife has locks, and I remember when hers started to mature, so it actually looked like locks, instead of just twists. Mm-hmm. Like the people at her job, sometimes are like, oh, what did you do to your hair? It looks difficult. I don't know. People just feel like they have to comment. They have to reach out and touch. And it's okay to ask questions like, wow, how how did you do that style? I would appreciate just a question, but just to reach out and grab or to make these these obscene comments. I just, I just wish I could understand it back in.
0: It's a another ongoing issue with professionalism and the idea that you can't be professional with certain hairstyles. Right. I'm scratching my head.
1: I am too, and I'm also think I'm probably making a lot of weird faces cuz I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. Um, I'm just like, um, oh, what? Like it just it I just can't even imagine, you know, someone invading your personal space. For any reason. Uh, So,
0: (sighs) yeah. That's crazy. Lauren, when you have your hair in its natural state, when it's beautiful, bouncy, and like a fro, and your hair is, quote, big. But I don't see people talking about like, and this is just a stereotype in my head, like Dolly Parton, for example. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. they always say something about the bigger the hair, the closer to God. You know, like, there was that saying. So, But I don't know if people would ever say... A hairstyle like that is unprofessional. Right. Because I feel
2: like that's associated with whiteness. Like that kind of big hair, where it's it's literally just big, like teased with hairspray, it's still straight, even though, like, if it has curls in it. But, like, when we talk about like natural black hair, it's big, it's curly, it's thick. Honestly, I probably couldn't get a comb through my hair. It's just, it's different, I think, than. What, like, just big hair? Like I said, like, teased hair. I feel like that might be some of the difference. That type of big hair isn't associated with blackness, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (sighs) There's going to be a lot of sighing in this episode, I feel. (laughs) And I think that's a thing that I want to bring out to our listeners is that our goal is not necessarily to be Debbie Downers during this whole episode. It's to bring attention to these issues that... Mm -hmm. Again, in our field, knowing how homogenous it is, people may not even realize that these are issues experienced by their peers that are people of color, you know? And so awareness is the first step. Just thinking about how we are occupying space, we need to be aware of how others, what they face as well. And so that's kind of what I'm hoping this episode can bring light to. So the next one is, oh... I can't understand what they're saying. So this one is talking about how individuals who speak their language with another coworker in like the break room or or even in the not even out in the break room but in the professional setting that English is the only professional language that exists and if you don't there was a woman that quoted she said it's very disconcerting to have different languages spoken. And she called it, I call that a language hostile environment. So none of us have heard that term before. This,
1: is, this so, is new vocab for me.
0: Yeah. Let's, me let's unpack that a little bit then. Language hostile environment. Um, I mean, who, so clearly who are we she being hostile
1: threatened. to? Like we're being right. hostile to the English language?
0: She felt like she was threatened by that because okay. she did not have access to it. Therefore, she was excluded but it's really just xenophobia. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are your thoughts on that?
2: I don't get that either because I feel like being bilingual, trilingual, such a gift. I don't understand how that would make someone feel threatened. It almost to me seems like a control thing. Like I'm supposed to be in control. I'm the supervisor. I'm the manager, whatever the role of that person was. But you're speaking this language and I don't understand. I feel like I'm losing control. So let's just stop this right now let's bring it all back to English. And that way I can be in control. I can understand what's going on. I just, I feel like it's a control thing. It's like an insecurity thing, but I mean, I just,
1: do. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask, do you think it's also maybe a FOMO thing? Like maybe they're talking about something fun, Mm -hmm. you know, and I can't participate and that makes me angry or they could be talking Mm -hmm. about me. Yeah. And I don't know it.
0: Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah.
1: Like it, it seems to me like an insecurity thing, you know. Well, it's, it,
0: you're assuming ill intent, you know, instead of like assuming best intent. Here, they wrote a statistic from The Guardian that found that eight in 10 employers admit to making discriminating decisions based on regional accents, like African American English. People automatically assume that's less mm-hmm. professional. Is there another word that I can think of?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's
0: it. I struggle with that. Even as SLPs, Mm -hmm. sometimes we try and diagnose AAE as a language deficit.
2: Right. That's frustrating. And just quick disclaimer, I have a whole video on my Instagram where I give specific examples of features of AAE. Yeah. Because it is, yeah, it is so overdiagnosed. I work with adults. And I have a lot of adults come in with aphasia and we do structured sentence work. And a lot of them are older black males and they speak AAE and being mindful that if they make a sentence, like we be going to the store all the time, that's, that's correct. That's, you know, AAE is rule based. And so in terms of AAE, that is correct. And I feel like as speech pathologists, we just have to be more mindful of what is dialect, what is disorder and not assuming that AAE is unprofessional or ghetto or ebonics. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. oh, God. I remember I was in grad school. <laughs> <Ebonics>. Yeah. <that's-
1: laughs> I haven't heard that word in a while. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah.
2: But I know for me, I have never gone into an interview speaking AAE. I've always code switched. And I know in the video I made about AAE, I was talking about, I don't ever remember like my mom or my dad or anyone sitting down and saying like, you... I to only speak like this when you go into professional settings. It was just something that I've learned mm-hmm. and didn't even know I had a name until I got to grad school. And I was like, that's what I'm doing this whole time. So it's interesting because I just feel like I speak AAE everywhere with my coworkers, sometimes even with my patients, with my wife, you know, with my friends. And so, you know, when I get into a professional setting, like an interview or... Maybe a phone call with a doctor at work. I just automatically cope with. I don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It's like ingrained in me.
0: Yeah. The more I learn about it, the more again, there's two questions that I have. And again, Lauren, not saying that you speak for the entire black community. But one, I've noticed that like when I talk about AAE to other people for the black community, they give me that look like, like african-american english is that what you're calling? you know like there's this look of like why are you calling it that that's just how you know like it's not accepted from other people that aren't in our field right that i call it african-american english they're like that's just how i speak Mm -hmm. right so how would you suggest individuals like slps talk to parents talk to other family members to say this is i'm not saying that (laughs) yeah (laughs) I'm not putting a label to it to say that it's a negative. I'm trying to actually say that like, it's legit, you know, yeah. like it's a rule-based, <laughs> you know, system. So how do you breach that subject with other people? Because I know myself and the majority of my white peers would have a hard time with that conversation.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't actually thought about that, but one thing I, I would probably say is I think when black families hear. American English. It does, like if I wasn't a speech therapist and someone said that to me about my child, I would probably feel a little offended just because I'm like, why, why are you pointing that out? Like like you just said, that's just how I speak. So maybe even presenting it as, you know, it's just a dialect and explain to them what a dialect is, but maybe not adding the African American English tag to it, or, you know, maybe not even bringing it up at all. It's not Impacting the child's ability to participate with even therapy, or the parent doesn't see any concern with it. But I know I I did have someone reach out one time on Instagram, and the parent was a black family. The parent was upset that the speech therapist, the white speech therapist, was not working on the child's dialectal differences, which was very interesting. And I know she was like, "What do I do?" And I was telling her, you know, just giving the parents specific examples of these dialectal differences finding research to support why it's not wise to work on a dialectal difference. And, you know, just the idea of like I shared, I think as people who speak AAE, because there are white people who speak it and Asian people speak it, you just kind of learn to post switch. It's just something that you learn as you go through life and you go through different professional experiences. I don't have a pro- like an exact answer, but those would be my initial thoughts. I know it's uh, probably a little bit harder when dealing with pediatrics and families. So it's something for me to reflect on.
0: Yeah. So we had another article that we brought up, which brings us to our next topic, which is racism within the LGBTQ plus community. One thing that this research that we found kind of brought up was that the unique intersectionality of multi-marginalized groups and how they navigate the world. This is outside of professionalism. This is just in general. So being a person of color and an LGBTQ member, the difficulties that exist within that, there hasn't been a lot of research related to that topic because one, finding a population that's accessible is hard. And then two, just finding the right measure And so this one article from June 16th, 2014. Wow. That was so long ago, y'all. But it was (laughs) called Measuring Multiple Minority Stress, the LGBT People of Color Microaggression Scale. What they did was they actually created a scale that people were able to fill out, self-report. And I was hoping that we can go over a few of the items that were interesting to me. I'm going to ask both Natalie and Lauren to kind of give us their own perspective. And then I'll also add my two cents in. Yeah. But So
1: these are survey questions for, that they used in the study? Yes, right?
0: correct. Okay. So I'll start with the first one. Whether or not you identified it or if it's not an issue. Being the token LGBT person of color in groups or organizations. Thoughts?
2: I've never experienced that. I feel like my... Friend group in terms of like my LGBTQ friend group is mostly black. A lot of my gay friends are black. A lot of my lesbian friends are black. So I guess I've never actually,
1: I've never experienced that.
0: What about you, Natalie? <laughs> well, no,
1: I've never been the token.
0: Um, you haven't been the token white person? <laughs> I've
1: heard of no, that. It's a thing. Is it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> in other well, countries. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would think in other countries. The most overarching thing, I think, for me is just feeling like I'm gonna do or say something wrong. And I've spent a lot of time, you know, working on that and just being like, Yeah, I've for sure probably done some things really wrong. But you know, I can't change the past. I can only change right now and in the future. And so it's just like, I'm probably gonna make mistakes. I just need to get over that because I'm not gonna move forward if I don't allow myself the room to do that. But I think that that's the biggest feeling I've had is just I don't want to mess up, but I'm going to probably mess up.
0: Yeah, I think you saying that is giving others who are listeners in our predominantly white field that permission to do so, which allows for more growth. So thank you for that. That's what I was secretly hoping to get from you. So. (laughs) <laughs> wait wait, <laughs> wait.
1: You know, to, to go back to brene it's like about vulnerability you yeah. know and she always says be awkward brave and kind yeah right and it's yeah. just like uh, i'm gonna be vulnerable i'm gonna be awkward you, you know? gotta
0: step into that arena right and so yeah we don't have time for people who don't step into the arena with us yeah as for me this is a huge thing in the gay community It's huge. Cis white gays are like the poster child for the gay community. Like they are what is out there. And so having like your one black friend, your one Asian friend, and then a group of cis white males, that is not uncommon. That is what every pride float is, you know, and so um, that is oh not like it's so <laughs> gross thinking about it, but it's so true. Um, and but so I'm there's laughing
1: because it's so
0: true. It is so true. And it is sad, <laughs> but it is the reality. It's very much what is expressed in mainstream media. You don't see. I mean, when you think of like a, you know, like call me by your name. Hello. You know, <laughs> that alone. I didn't see, you know, uh, love, Simon. I was a white guy, you know, like, these are the, this is the representation of the gay male in mainstream media is a cis white male. And so when you have that, it's very common to have that tokenization.
2: You know, it's interesting. You just talked about Love, Simon, the movie, like all of the Black LGBTQ movies I have watched are all so trauma-ridden. Like, all of them are about This horrible coming out story. They come out to their parents. They get kicked out of the house. You know, it's there's like I don't think I've ever seen one black lesbian love story ever.
0: I have not. Me neither.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen that in in all kinds of of LGBT movies, like that were being portrayed as somehow broken. Yes, Mm
0: -hmm. the black LGBTQ plus woman is often traumatized, Mm -hmm. especially if you're a trans black woman. That is just it. That's your story. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, again, that's a problem. Here's the next question um, or item, which was white LGBT people saying things that are racist to you. Have you ever had that?
2: I don't think I have. Yeah, Yeah, I haven't.
0: I have. I've heard it like, so racist in the way that like, oh, you're Asian, you must like this. So it has nothing to do with my looks or, you know, a potential partner literally like, "Oh, that's what you're into. You must eat, you know, like you eat cats, you know, things like that." Wow. Yeah, Natalie, it's <laughs> It's It's awful. Wow. It's so bad.
1: God, it's so terrible. Um, um,
0: that is those are the comments that have been said to me.
1: People actually say yeah. that um and i don't know if
0: that's necessarily because i mean like that just happened to come from another white lgbt person i don't know if that's specific to the lgbt part <laughs> uh, you know because i could see that coming from like a, a heterosexual white person as well but just that extra layer of it <laughs> just makes it even worse
1: the lgbt community is not invulnerable to the rest of the world like they're right. we are just as vulnerable to biases that exist in in this country Mm -hmm. being queer doesn't automatically make you not biased right right right. so yeah i mean it, it may or may not have anything to do with them being queer it could just you know being exposed to the world that we live in right now right
0: here's one and i don't know like not having any lgbt people of color as positive role models i can't think of one for me
1: Maybe it's just because I was just listening to her podcast today, but I love Laverne Cox. Yeah. That was the
0: first Black woman that's part of the LGBT community that I can... I mean, in modern times. In modern mm-hmm. times, you know. I'm thinking about yeah. Marsha P. Johnson. What do you call RuPaul? RuPaul, Marsha P. Johnson. I'm thinking about, you know, like...
1: Oh, see, just- I'm thinking of like... <laughs> like tv stars yeah yeah well i mean there's
0: 90s and then there's before like i'm aging myself by quoting marsha p johnson but you know i don't know lauren what about you
2: yeah i when i think about black lesbian women i i mean what's her name she's like a talk show host on good morning america what is her name robin something oh yeah 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 is robin a lesbian
1: oh i can't remember her last name but yes i think it is robin yeah robin but yes yeah i didn't know she was a lesbian yeah yeah, she came out like there was someone else who came out recently or very quietly married a woman and then people were like wait what oh yeah niecy
0: Niecy nash's
1: niecy nash that That was it
2: it was niecy nash i know for me like and with Black lesbian women, I mean, you'll hear of some of these, like, celebrities coming out, but I don't see a lot of people that are, like, openly out sharing, like, pictures of their partner and talking about their partner, like, Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: you know, on their jobs or as a talk show host, like, mentioning, oh, my wife does XYZ. So for me, I don't think I see a lot of positive role models in the, like, in regards to people just being out and proud of who they are regardless of like their status and their job you know Mm -hmm. so i think that was why it was so hard for me sometimes to just like be open about my relationship with my wife and like talking about her on my soup in the heart page and featuring her in my videos i was very like hesitant at first and now i'm like here she is y'all know her by name now right um (laughs) so yeah I, i wish there were like more black lgbtq people who are just like hey this is even if they don't have a partner but like yeah, I'm lesbian, I'm gay, I'm transgender, you know, whatever it is. And just being more open with
0: it. Being visible.
2: Yes. That would help so, so many people.
0: <sighs> Lauren, you are somebody's role model, probably. I hope so. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody told us that. And I was like, Natalie, <gasps> there's <gasps> pressure. <laughs> <laughs> But we're just trying to be visible yeah. But, yeah. yeah no as far as asians i don't know any um mm. that are like especially ones that are like portrayed in a positive light isn't um, bisexual
1: she's yes
0: she is definitely a queer so I guess icon I'm, but yeah she definitely is a queer icon i don't okay let me retract that then any gay may, like gay males may, just males males mm-hmm. that i can think of Mm. And I grew up thinking of as a, I mean, again, the first out person that I even remembered was Ellen, as far as celebrity Me goes. Me too.
1: Um, mm. As far
0: as like somebody outside of like the entertainment industry. I mean, what about <sighs> sports? Aren't there's confirmed? I feel like sometimes <laughs> it's, it's, it's harder to find in professional sports. Well, like when Caitlyn Jenner came out as trans, that was a big thing. Yeah. I'm all about her being trans, but that's also a white person. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: as far as people of color
2: i know um britney griner she's a WNBA. she's open i think her, her and her wife got married like a couple months ago i follow her on instagram but she's very open about who she is and her relationship with her wife it's it's beautiful and i love that i love like i don't know i just like seeing people happy and unashamed of who they are you know
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there like a large stereotype for like professional female athletes to be lesbians? Oh, yeah. That's a whole nother thing to <laughs> back as far as like clearly that's not the truth because that's just a very biased statement and that's probably rooted in chauvinism um, and misogyny. Um, but like a, a powerful woman must be a lesbian or butch or, you know, whatever. That's another thing. But yeah. <sighs> Okay. (laughs) Any last thoughts on that one, Natalie? (laughs) No! Okay, I'll move on to the next one. Being rejected by other LGBT people of your same race or ethnicity, or have you just been accepted? Or what about outside of it? What about outside of that, too? So, being rejected by your same race or ethnicity for being LGBT. Let's make it that one.
2: Yeah, well, definitely that last one. But in terms of like being rejected by... Black LGBTQ people, not at all. But I know, like when I first came out, some of my friends are like, eh. and they just we just stopped talking. Um, and at the time, it bothered me. But again, like I talked about on the last podcast, just being unashamed and you know proud of who I was and who I still am. But I think that definitely does
0: happen. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially there's there's this piece again. I hate saying that I, I I even used this term so much when I was growing up, but I would always say that I was whitewashed. We've all heard that term, but there is this idea again with the Asian community. When our parents migrated here, there was this huge push to be westernized and indoctrinated. And so I didn't get taught our home language. Like it was like, no, you will speak English. There was no connection to that. So I did not grow, like I went to a predominantly white Catholic school. My parents just like was like, Here, you're going to grow up there. So I was one of the only children of color in my whole school. And so coming up with that idea, like I felt like I use the term whitewash. I don't know how else to describe it, but I definitely wasn't really connected to my own personal culture growing up. And so there is that existence within, at least in the gay community there, there are those that like really subscribe to their Western identities And don't really relate as much to their ethnicity. There is that piece of like unpacking that, that I'm still working on myself. So I know that exists, at least for me. What about you, Natalie? Have you observed that? Have you experienced that?
1: I don't think that I have experienced that kind of rejection from a racial standpoint like from other white people like rejecting me. I think that where I've gotten the most rejection is actually from people of relig- certain religious backgrounds. So the area of the country that I'm now living in that I grew up in, there's a very large evangelical Christian community out here and where I've gotten the most rejection is from those friends who are part of that community. Not saying that every evangelical is like this, because absolutely not. But the friendships that I've lost over the years, particularly when I came out, were the friends who were evangelical Christians. And that's that's where I have had
0: the most judgment. That's a big topic. That's a big topic. (laughs) Faith in the LGBTQ community.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, that's a whole other episode right there. Um,
0: Which will probably happen. So
1: i mean hopefully we'll cover all the things
0: yeah but yeah no i also same with that one what about here being seen as a sex object by other lgbt people because of your race or ethnicity i'll go last but (laughs) lauren have you ever been sexualized because you are a black lesbian
2: yeah, I know sometimes I would ha- like there would be male friends or just male acquaintances that would joke around wanting to have a threesome with me and my wife. Like that was their main thing. They're like, oh, y'all are lesbians. Oh, let's let's have a threesome. And I'm like, you must not understand the point of being a lesbian. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's a, I think a lot of those types of comments. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a huge sexualized. thing. Mm hmm. They fetish. I I've heard of this, like lesbian couples being fetishized by cis heterosexual men, and I don't. I'm like, do you really think that you are that? <laughs> like, like all of that, mm-hmm. that that is what is required?
1: <laughs> like yes. in a
0: relationship. Help me unpack that. both Well, of you. I
1: I have an opinion about that. Yeah, about do tell. I mean, so, I I mean I think especially young men of maybe younger generations and maybe i don't know maybe even older generations i have no idea have been taught about sex through porn right
0: oh that's me yeah
1: right you learn about what sex is and what it's supposed to look like through porn there's so much porn out there of threesomes which is one man and two women and the women are like all over each other and it's just like when you're learning about sex through porn and you think that's how it's supposed to be then you get this idea in your head that that's how it is and when you're a young person, you don't necessarily have a, the ability to tease out the difference between reality and fantasy, right? Porn is a fantasy. It's not real. Mm-hmm. So that's my theory. I love that. Because I've heard that too, Lauren, mm-hmm. that like, you know, of straight men thinking like, oh, oh, lesbian's so hot. And it's like, yeah, get a dictionary. Right. Go <laughs> <right? laughs> to the L <laughs> section. Right. Right. <laughs>
0: you know and that's so interesting because i've never i mean nope i've never (laughs) never been approached by a a heterosexual female cis female asking me to join (laughs) so i think that's a one-way street for that one i mean i can't say it's not gonna ever happen but i'm definitely not heard of it from my own experience what about you natalie has anybody ever fetishized you for being a white lesbian
1: I've possibly been fetishized for being a lesbian. Okay. But not for for my race. Mm
0: -hmm. No. Okay. Yeah, I totally have. I was saying before the podcast, we call individuals who really like Asians rice queens. There are different kinds of queens you can be. You can be, and these are all racist names. (laughs) So a rice queen is somebody who likes Asians. A bean queen is somebody who likes Hispanics. A potato queen is somebody who likes white people. And I'm sure there's another one. I forget what it's called, to be honest. But the gay community loves to label things. Um, but
1: <laughs> Like, I mean, Hector, do you have any, any inkling why that is? Like,
0: why? You know, like, my honest-to-goodness theory is that it's all based in this idea of, like, heteronormative ideas of masculinity. Like, The world is mine to populate. The world is my oyster. And so that's my conquest. You know, like there's this ownership to it. It all stems from like, you know, you don't really talk about like, I would never say myself that I, as somebody who also, if I were to find another Asian person attractive, I would never say that I'm a rice queen. They would actually call me sticky rice, which is... (laughs) It's terrible.
1: It's terrible. If, if everyone could see my face right now, it would just be jaw drops.
0: Yeah. So with that in mind, um sticky rice. Sticky quiz. rice. Just sticky rice. Cause there's two rice pieces going together. Oh, <laughs> it's terrible. I mean, I
1: remember, yeah. I have a friend who's who's a bear and he was trying to describe to me all the different names mm-hmm. in the bear community alone.
0: Yeah. So there's all kinds of labels that it all stems, I personally believe, from like cis, white, heteronormative ideas of like the white male is the top dog, you know, leader of the pack. And so they get to decide, you know, what is of value. And so I think it stems from that, to be honest. All of those queen names come from like how a white person is attracted to them.
1: So it's all coming from the perspective of the white male cis
0: yeah um, essentially oh yeah
1: oh wow
0: yeah. uh-huh so <laughs> there's some deep-rooted wow. stuff in the gay community
1: <laughs> right uh,
0: i know oh my um
1: goodness. i just like racking my brain and i cannot think of a single like lesbian equivalent there's butch and femme but not real i mean like to me, it's more of a description of like, gender presentation,
0: right? Right. But yeah. I,
1: you know, it's like those kinds of racist names to give someone. I mean, Lauren, can you think of any? Yeah, I I can't wrap my head around like the racist names.
2: That's yeah. But um, like I know in the in the black LGBT community, there's all there's fem to describe like a more I guess feminine woman presenting woman, but then there's stud which I think is a little bit different and I've heard that stud is like more of the black way of um I guess stating like butch so I know like people would probably look at my wife and say she's a stud but to be honest I don't think like any of my black LGBTQ friends I've never heard them use the term butch that was like new to me when I got to college what is bush like you mean stud so i i think that's interesting too and how some of those terms can be into you know interchange too
1: that's interesting i didn't know that i never even heard
0: of stud so i just learned that i have a question for y'all as lesbians and because we haven't really spoken about like the trans community a lot what are your thoughts on turf lesbians and can you explain what turf lesbian is?
1: It is trans-exclusionary radical feminist. The first time that I heard of this, so this was maybe 15 or 20 years ago, there used to be the Michigan Women's Music Festival in Michigan. I remember that they would let trans men in because they had been born female, but trans women were not born women, so therefore were not welcome. And that was the first time that I ever heard of this sort of thing. So a, a TERF is a feminist who views trans women as not women in their view. I disagree with that, but that is a TERF. And I think recently there's been this big thing with J.K. Rowling making some statements about trans women.
0: Ruin Harry Potter.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I was in a feminist bookstore a couple of weeks ago, and they were like, they had this like little sale section and they had all their Harry Potter books there. <laughs> they were like, we're not carrying it anymore. So we're just oh. selling it for like 50 cents. <laughs> we're not selling Harry Potter.
0: Uh, you know, I was curious because when Elliot Page came out as non-binary, I remember reading comments from other lesbians saying, oh, we lost another good one as a model of, you know, lesbianism in the oh. in the mainstream media. <laughs> uh, Natalie is wow. Is- <laughs> and so there was this huge you know conversation online and I would love your perspective both of you as lesbians do you feel like you're losing out because that's how some people feel and they were labeled as turf lesbians I don't think I'm missing out what do you think Lauren no nope. okay there's <laughs> <laughs> just some people who feel like There's a lack of lesbian representation.
1: We're losing our butch women to transgenderism. I've heard that. I've heard that. And I call BS on that.
0: Okay. We'll also link this article because I think it's a good resource for everybody. There's so many more nuances to this questionnaire that I think anybody who was looking to see, you know, how they fit in or, you know, feel about some of these topics it's a great way to start some conversations in your own communities so we're gonna wrap up by talking a little bit more about our field and kind of like steps moving forward we've asked this question i don't know how many times both natalie and i but again we just want to keep bringing it up like how does the field of speech language pathology move forward when it comes to inclusion to unpacking the idea now of professionalism as a white construct and how do we do that thoughts
2: this is generally speaking just to stop being ignorant and maybe like if if you feel like you can't be culturally competent or culturally humble or being able to work with people who are completely different than you you know it takes some of that introspective work to figure out you know can I make these changes? Can I have uncomfortable conversations with colleagues or, you know, other students in my cohort about race and equality and, you know, diversity? And, you know, if you're not able to, that's something I think about as well. I think people have this dream of pursuing speech pathology, which is great, but it's more than just teaching people how to talk. It's working with all different types of people. It's working whether it's a patient or a coworker or a supervisor. So it's, being able to do the work outside of the actual work of being a speech pathologist. It it just seems so simple to me. I I just, I wish I had a more concrete answer.
0: I love that. I love that. Like you're putting the onus on the pathologist shape up or ship out. Like Mm -hmm. if you can't get it together, this might not be the job for you. And I love that you're like, it's not off. We tiptoe around that, you Mm -hmm. know, like if we're in grad school, for example, and you're a book smart clinician who knows everything about aphasia, but can't work with people as a clinician, you're not going to cut it. You know, you would not pass. (laughs) So (laughs) as a practicing clinician, if you can't be culturally competent, and you actually have a license to practice, maybe you need to think about that on a deeper level. I'm not saying that Mm -hmm. that's what people are, you know, like, I'm not judging anyone specifically by any means. But I think... You know, putting some accountability on our on clinicians to own it is a good step, I would say.
1: Well, I mean, and I, I think we talk a lot about, you know, recruiting more people into the profession, you know, people of color or people of multiple languages or you know, you name it, just trying to recruit more people of different backgrounds and make it just less white and female around in this profession. But what I hear you both saying is that in addition to those kinds of actions. We all need to do the internal work of combating our own biases. We all grew up in this kind of culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess unless you came from another country. (laughs) So I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry. But you know, like the majority of us, I guess in the United States anyway, grew up in this culture. If we really want to change things, we have to start from within. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. It's scary. Like I said earlier, there's the fear of making a mistake, but you have to try. You have to put in the effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what I hear you both saying is just like, just make an effort to, to educate yourself. And that kind of thing will move us forward, I think, better than just recruiting more people of
0: color. Right. I agree. Like
1: you can do that, but the attitudes have to change. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Especially with like 96 to 98% of our field being not people of color. Yeah. Right. With that in mind, yeah, that shift for eventually recruitment, that's a great, that's, that's kind of us all talking about that, that great idea of of the future. But the reality is that that's not our current makeup. And so I think the other thing for me is like personal growth is personal. So that there's your journey, but professional growth, you're getting paid to do a job. So if it's inhibiting you from actually doing your job well, there's a bit more accountability that can be placed on you, yeah. I feel again my own personal opinion, but I think there's there's more to it than just like working on your own time there you're very really impacting other people's lives because yeah. you are a clinician who is either diagnosing or working directly with people
1: that reminds me I think it was a c Goldberg who said something similar to what you were saying, Lauren and Hector about like this is your job. Mm-hmm. Right. No matter what your feelings are, this is your job and you need to treat everyone with Mm -hmm. with the respect that they deserve. Right. Because it is your job. I completely agree that if you can't make steps to go there, then maybe, you know, maybe working with any person in a service capacity is not for you. Mm Not just speech pathology, but any other profession that helps people or works with people. Oh, my gosh. What job would you have (laughs) left? I mean, really? (laughs) Um,
0: Another thing that I want us to talk about that will be helpful, especially to our field, is naming it. Like, I always want to assume best intent. That's always going to be my case. But I also want to name the reality of the statistics show that we're not all, the, the majority of our field, it's not balanced. And Even now I'm struggling to name it. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, we're predominantly white and cis yeah. female. And that's hard to work around if you can't even name it for what it is. You know, how do you address inequities if you can't even name the difficulties? Can exist?
1: I add can I add mm-hmm. on to that? just a little bit it's majority female except in academia
0: right that's a whole other issue across the board yeah (laughs) academia not even specific to speech language pathology (laughs) yeah but i'm just i'm just
1: i'm adding that in there that if you look at academia it is not majority female
0: (laughs) (laughs) academia in general is such a pomp the word pompous comes to mind (laughs)
1: This is where we learn about our field. This is where we come right. from. Right? Like, and then we sent the baby SLPs. We release them out into the world. Mm-hmm. And there are things that they don't know. Right. I just want them to be okay.
0: I want everybody with a name that is unique to be given the same chance to get into grad school. yeah mm-hmm. I want everybody who doesn't speak standard American English when interviewed for a spot to also be equally, and, and I want the GRE to go away. Oh. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so many things that are barriers for people of color to, especially those that are not standard American English speakers, to access our field. There are tangible things that can be done, whether or not. We do them though, is I mean, that's not up to any of us here. Yeah. <laughs> so but it, it but it is a thing that can be done, you know? And so yeah. the question is whether or not actions will eventually occur as a result of that. But I think dialogue, yeah, conversation. Well, and I think that's why we keep step. asking the question, Hector. Yeah. Because it's like the tenth time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we I mean we I think we end up asking it almost every episode. Right. <laughs> because it's so important. Yeah
0: yeah you know what i would love to know and maybe we can make this as an episode like i want to unpack this in other countries like what are they doing what does the yes. field of speech look like in other countries
1: if we have any listeners from another country can you please reach out to us
0: yes i know they
1: exist
0: right what, i don't know what your because i have access to our Podbean
1: account so i know that they exist <laughs> hey if you're a listener in another country please
0: Please reach know. out. We want to know how you deal with multicultural issues but also racism within the field of speech language pathology or I am not sure what you might call it in your part of the world, <laughs> communication <laughs> disorders, uh whatever it may be, speech and hearing sciences. Anyway, please reach out. We would love to get your input. Any last thoughts anyone before we wrap it up?
1: I guess I'm going to go back to quoting Brené and just be awkward, brave and kind.
0: Mm-hmm. Lauren, what about you?
1: I just,
2: uh, you know, eventually one day I do want to see a more diverse field. I want to, you know, look around, especially in the medical setting, see black and brown SLPs holding down the fort in hospitals and NIFs yes, and, you know, being directors in rehab. You know, we just don't see that a lot now. So I'm, I'm hoping that eventually we'll start seeing that change, but it definitely does start with that internal work white SLPs acknowledging your privilege, acknowledging what you can do with your privilege and listening to your black and brown colleagues or, you know, other students in your cohort, not pushing them to teach you, but just listening and, you know, acknowledging what we can all do to just keep pushing, you know, keep progressing.
0: Awesome. I love that. My final thoughts would be, again, just building off of what all you said, like, I just want to see more representation from every marginalized group in positions of management, positions of power, because that's what's going to lead change, in my opinion, is that visibility up top. It's like that (laughs) trickle down. diversity
1: (laughs) how well did that work for reagan right
0: that that worked really great for roganomics but you know what we're gonna call it trickle down diversity (laughs) (laughs) and see how that works thanks for joining us on the queer slp stay tuned for our next episode
1: stay tuned for more discussions thank you for listening to this episode of the queer slp
0: want to be featured on our instagram page or be on the show Check us out at thequeerslp.com for more information.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Queer SLP.
0: If you enjoyed listening, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Bye! Bye.